Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, January 25th, we are studying John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. When Jesus goes up to Jerusalem again for one of the Jewish festivals, he goes to the pool of Bethesda, and there he meets a man who had been disabled for 38 years. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor James Yonkers. Pastor Yonkers serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Danville, Illinois. Pastor Yonkers, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Well, thank you. It's good to be here again to study God's Word and to learn a little bit more about Jesus and His message here to us and what he has to say. Pastor Yonkers, as we get started today, let's talk a little bit of context. We have come through four chapters in the Gospel of John. Now, what shall we know as we prepare to look at the first part of John chapter 5? I, I think what we need to look at is, you know, he's he's done a, a miracle. This is going to be another one of the miracles that he does here at the Pool of Bethesda. And to understand how that uh, influences the response of those who are there as he heals on the Sabbath. Okay, so that's going to be one new uh, wrinkle, I suppose we could think about it like that, in chapter 5, is that this sign that Jesus does is done on the Sabbath. And we've we've seen a variety of reactions to Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. Some have received him quite readily. Think about, uh, for example, Philip, who heard Jesus say, follow me, and Philip did. Some have had a few more questions, like Nathaniel, his friend, who wondered what good could come from Nazareth. We've seen Jesus speak to a Samaritan woman at a well. He's spoken to an official of Capernaum, and now he's going to be back up in Jerusalem for the feast, for a feast of the Jews. We've seen Jesus go up to Jerusalem before. Here we see him going yet again. That is the context for this chapter. So let's go ahead and read. This is John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man that said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, 
as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's our text for today. That is John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. So, Pastor Yonkers, at the beginning of our text, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. In any of your reading, did do you know which feast of the Jews this was that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for? No, it's not named here. And I, that's, I like to stick with what the gospel says. It doesn't name it. Some think it might have been a Passover. Others say it might have just been the day, a day of atonement. And so it's not listed here, though. And I like to stick with the text and go with what it says, which is there was a feast. There was many people going to Jerusalem. Jesus was participating in the faith life of the community of the Jews. And that that's where I like to leave it. But I know others like to really wonder what feast was it. We want to know more than God gives. But sometimes I like to say, God told us this. Let's leave it at that. That's right. And and so we, we certainly should, should stick with the text. We know it is one of the feasts that the Jews would have gone to Jerusalem for on a regular basis. And we've seen this already from Jesus. He's gone to Jerusalem for a Passover already. This is an unnamed one. It certainly could have been a Passover. And I, I guess the, the, the point that I would draw from, from your attention to the text as it stands is that whatever feast it was that he went up to Jerusalem for, it's not important that we know what that feast was for us to understand what happens. The The point, at least in this case, is not going to be he's going to do something in particular to that feast as, say, you know, in the future when he goes up for a different feast, maybe what he does is intended to relate to that. Here, it's, it's enough for us to know he went up to Jerusalem as one of the observant Israelites listening to the law of God given in the Old Testament. He's doing what he's supposed to according to God's law, as we've seen him do for whichever feast it was. As you said, this is among a a group of faithful Jews. Again, this is something we've seen as well. In chapter 4, it was noted that other people had gone to a previous feast with him, and they saw what he did. So we know he's going with others. That's the context. He's there in Jerusalem yet again for one of the feasts that you would have gone for. That's the information John gives us. Now, he points out particularly where Jesus goes in Jerusalem in this case, and he tells us about a sheep gate and a pool named Bethesda and who was normally there. Talk about that now narrower setting at this pool in Bethesda. When we look at the pool of Bethesda here, we know it was right by right by the, the gate. People would go there. They, they would stand there, and especially the sick the, the, we hear them, the sick, the blind, the paralyzed, they go there. And there'd be a time when it would bubble up and who's ever first in that pool would receive a healing. Now, I don't, I don't know where that came from. I'm not quite sure, but that seems to be the case in what would happen. And I, I, I wish that would still existed. I'd go be the first one I'd be able to see again uh, to my full extent. That would be wonderful. But here, 
uh, it, it's a place people go for healing. And so people are there for healing. And then, of course, we heard how Jesus heals the man. So Jesus gives the man what he's asking God for. For If we put this in context of faith, we know the healing comes from God, whether it be from the pool of Bethesda here or in our context, whether it be through the skill in the hands uh, of the doctors or, or other medical professionals. It's still through the grace of God and by his hand that we are healed. All right, so this this text is going to invite those kinds of conversations about the the healing that God does, whether it is through something that, that we might call a miracle, as, as we see here, that he does it apart from the way that he has normally established such things, or whether he does that, as, as you're saying, through the, the healing power that he has, you know, that he has ordained through the work of doctors, nurses, medicines. Either way, the Lord is the one who does the healing, and and we can we can talk about that in connection with this text. You mentioned, you know, there's there was apparently this belief that existed at this time that whenever this pool was stirred up, the first one to enter into the pool is the one who would receive healing. We we find that in the the words of the man in verse seven. That's why this man is here. Talk a little bit about the details that John gives us of this man, uh, what his uh, condition is, how long he suffered from it. It says there for, for over 30 years, I think it's 34 is the number there. You know, he, so it's a long-term illness he's had, which prevents him from being mobile, which prevents him from walking. You know, today we have great aids for this. And, and, and I mean, we even have our Lutheran homes named after this miracle after this pool, Bethesda, and the, those ministries to those with disabilities. Uh, but back then, it was the, the goodwill of the community, the goodwill of your relatives, and their help. And this man didn't have that help. So he tried to struggle to the pool to be the first one every time. But every time, someone else would get there first. And so this man laid there day after day, hoping praying to God that he would be healed, waiting a long time for his healing, and it had not come. So he's been there for, well, uh, I guess it doesn't say that he has been there for 38 years. He's been no. he's been invalid for 38 years is what it says. So perhaps he's been there for quite some time. And, and as he says, he doesn't have anyone to carry him into the pool. So he is not able to do that himself, or at least not quickly enough, before someone else gets there. Jesus then, again, this is where he's come, to this setting where there are a number of number of people who are disabled in any various ways. He particularly goes to this man, and Jesus knows him, but he asks him a question. Talk about the, the way Jesus opens this conversation with the man. Where he says, it looks like in, in verse 6, he says, do you want to be healed? What, mm -hmm. Talk about Jesus' question initially to the man. Well, I, I think we all know, Jesus knows that the man's answer is yes. But sometimes, you know, he at, when we look at Jesus, he asks the obvious question to hear the person's response so we can then, uh, he can react on that response. Other times we see it, we see people coming to him, and he goes, well, what do you want? Well, Jesus already knows what we want. When we pray, 
You know, God knows our petitions even before we pray them. But we pray them because he invites us to ask him everything on our hearts that he can then bless us with the answers to all of our prayers, whether it's a yes, a no, or a wait a while. So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And again, mm-hmm. knowing knowing who this man is, knowing that this man has been there for quite some time, and, and knowing that, yes, the man wants to be healed, but inviting the man into a, a conversation to express why he's there, what his, you know, what what he believes and what he's up to. And, and so the the man's answer, well, we'll talk about the, the man's answer. What is maybe what's he thinking as he he starts to respond to Jesus? It, it, it's almost a, 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 a groaning. He's going, Lord, I'm all alone. Lord, I don't have someone to help me. I don't have someone to put me in the pool. I need someone to put me in the pool. So he's almost asking, will you be that person for me and put me in the pool? Not mm-hmm. recognizing Jesus as the source of all healing, the great physician of body and soul, but instead looking to Jesus just as a common person asking him, can you lift me up and put me in the pool next time it bubbles up? Mm. So yeah. I can be the first one and be healed. Mm, that's right. So so it's almost like, you know, the, the man hears in Jesus' question some sort of some sort of offer of, of help, or maybe a, a, you know, it's more than just Jesus saying, Come on, what are you what are you doing? Why are you lying around? But but rather the man seems to take Jesus' question as maybe Jesus is is offering to help. And so mm-hmm. the man then assumes, well, okay, I, I believe there is healing in this pool when it is stirred up. So I don't have anyone. So he tells Jesus, you know, I don't have anyone. I'm, I'm all alone. And, and maybe thinking that Jesus will be that one then to kind of hang around, wait till the pool gets stirred up, and then help this, this man into the pool first. Of course, Jesus has something better. So talk about the, what Jesus does then in verse 8. You'd expect Jesus here to say, sure, I'll help you into the pool so you can get healed. But instead, Jesus shows him the source of the healing is himself. So Jesus, rather than putting him in the pool when it bubbles up, he says, get up, take your bed and walk. As I read this, I thought of the time when they opened up the thatch roof when he was teaching. And they lowered the man down, the paralytic man down to Jesus. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. You know, it, it, it's the same type of thing where Jesus says, get up and walk. He doesn't say, I'm going to heal you. He doesn't say, I give you the grace. And I'm, you know, he just says, do it. Mm. And the interesting thing is the response here. It says, and at once the man was healed and he got up, took up his bed and walked. And I'm, I'm sorry. I like to think I'm a faithful person, but if someone told if someone told me get up and walk and i was a paralyzed man I, they'll probably look at him and go you're nuts mm-hmm. but this man doesn't do that he listens to the word of god and because he listens to the voice of jesus he is healed mm-hmm. he's healed he's able to pick up his bed and walk the man was healed instantly and he was able to do everything instantly he didn't have to go through therapy like we do through our medical healing he didn't have to live with a permanent disability even though he could now walk he was just able to pick up fully healed and go on his way yeah i mean it, it's in verse 9 the way verse 9 starts states that at once the man was healed 
which you know I, the way the way I'm I'm reading this is that Jesus speaks this word, "Get up, take your bed, and walk," and that word is effective right then to heal the man, such mm-hmm. that instead of you know laughing at him, the man realizes what's happened. He he feels the strength in his legs. And he he does what Jesus says. You know, we just a, one of the things I think we should take from this text is to see the authority of Jesus' word to do what he says yet again. And and thinking back just to the previous text, at the end of John four, there's this Capernaum official who comes to Jesus wanting him to heal his son, and Jesus tells him, "Go, your son will live." The man believes it. He goes, the son has been healed. And when the man does this investigation and, and says, well, you know, when, when did this happen? He discovers that it's actually at the same time that Jesus had said, your son will live. And so we have something almost exactly the same happening here with the word of Jesus. He speaks to this man and it happens at once. So we, we see the power of Jesus' word to do what he says Talk about the importance of that aspect of the Christian faith, that Jesus' word is effective to do what he says. I think sometimes we forget about that because we see the common means that are used so often. We want this great sign, but so often God works through the common things. You know, I I want this to happen. Answer my prayer, Lord, give me this. And if God doesn't give us this, he didn't answer our prayers. Well, that's not true, but that's so often how we think. But then here in this miracle, it is an immediate action. It is an immediate get up and walk, and immediately the man stands and walks. You know, so often when we are healed, God uses means. The means here that Jesus uses is simply his voice and his will, and it is done. And God's will is always done, we know. But here it's apparent, whereas when we see it in our own lives, when it's through common means, through a surgery or through a medicine or through a therapy, we go, oh, thank you, doctor, for getting the source of the doctor's knowledge, the source of the medicine, the source of all those good things, which is our Heavenly Father. Right. Well, and I, I think this is this is important for us to, to think about when we, you know, because the Lord still does his work of healing, as you said, through means today, but that that still comes through, I would say, his word. You know, his word that in the beginning created all things, that word is so effective that he continues to do that work through his word. You know, I mean, as an example, when when the Lord said to to all of the, the living beings, you know, be fruitful and multiply, that word was effective for procreation. And so, you know, when the Lord created all things by his word, that word continues to be effective to do the things for which he created all these these good gifts of God. And so the, you know, the knowledge that he gives to doctors and to nurses and to medical professionals, that knowledge comes through his creative work. And it then is his word that remains effective to do what he says. His his word that created you know medicines to do what they do, that word remains effective. And so we as as Christians, anytime we receive the gift of healing, according to you know the Lord's desire to give it to us in the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread, we should always receive that gift ultimately 
with thanksgiving to him because he's the one who's given it. Exactly. You know, and that's, you, you have a good way of putting very well what I try to say and stumble over. Well, that's, <laughs> this is, this is sharper iron, right? We are sharpening the, the faith of each other and, and sharpening our words and, and listening to you express it allows me to, to speak it back. And, and yeah. And, and so I, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. I, I think, you know, with, with this talking about healing and, and doctors and nurses, if, if memory serves me right, Pastor Yonkers, you do work as a, as a chaplain. So I, if, is that correct? You, you do some hospital chaplaincy work? Yeah, yes, I did my I, my residency as a chaplain was my vicarage. I just came here a year ago from serving a large hospital in Des Moines. And since I've been here at, at the church, I now serve uh, a very active PRN as a hospital chaplain as well. So, I mean, I imagine that these are the kinds of conversations that you have the opportunity to to talk with people in, in the hospital about the Lord and his gift of healing and, and patience and prayer and things like that. Yeah, the the Lord and patience and prayer, and one we don't often think about is how he comes to us and reveals his will to us and who he is, which he really does in a text outside of this uh, on the road to Emmaus with his disciples where he leads them and guides them. And where does he lead them and guide them? He leads and guides them to the Lord's Supper. Here that is not to the Lord's Supper. Here it's to a knowledge of who he is and just healing and restoring this man as he heals and restores all of us as he comes to us and gives us the forgiveness of sins that he won for us upon Calvary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, the importance of, of his word, I think is so significant again for us as Christians. And again, in connection with the, the previous text that that official from Capernaum went home with just the word of Jesus and that word proved true here, you know, this man experiences it right then and there, but he has the same thing. He has just the word of Jesus, and that word of Jesus proves true. That That is a the similar strength that we have as Christians, that we have the word of Jesus. And, and sometimes, you know, we see that word of Jesus prove itself true in front of our eyes, as, as in the gift of a healing, perhaps. Sometimes it's it's a little more hidden. For example, I, I think of you know the sacraments, holy baptism, holy communion, where mm-hmm. we have the Lord's word, you know, and and that that word of the Lord that washes over the the person in holy baptism, that word of the Lord spoken over bread and wine in holy communion. You you look at it and it's like, well, I don't really see anything, but because you have the word of the Lord, you know that you have what He promises, the the gifts that that are there are truly there, even if you, you can't see it as clearly as, as, say, this man does in John 5. Yeah, you know, and, and just, I love talking to people, especially the sick, about the words of the preface. You know, there we worship, in the preface, we, we declare that we worship with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. We're not just worshiping with the people in the pews in that sanctuary with us, but with the whole church in heaven and on earth there. And I always make clear, you know, I I'm not I don't actually look up and see the angels, but I know they're there with us because God said they are. He gives us His word that He is with us wherever two or three are gathered, and so as we gather together, we know He is with us, whether it's in in, in just an invisible form, as it, when you and I are talking and talking of this text, or when we gather together for the sacraments, as you mentioned. And there's a physical element to it, such as the water, the bread, the wine. Mm. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the the sacraments in, in connection with this text, simply because, you know, I mean, and maybe this is just my Lutheranism showing, but any time there's water in the scriptures, I, I'm always kind of looking for a, a connection to holy baptism, but I also don't want to force something that's not there. Mm-hmm. I, although I, I, I wonder if, if there's at least some parallels that we can draw from bap, toward baptism here. You know, this man is sitting at a pool of water, and, and he's expecting the healing to come from the water. Jesus points him in a different direction and says, no, expect the healing to come from me. I think, you know, maybe the, the temptation would be, well, then, okay, baptism, that's not that big a deal. Don't expect it from the water. Expect it from Jesus. But that's really, a, you know, a false dichotomy because Jesus puts himself in the water. He puts his word in the water so that we know that, you know, actually baptism, that really is the washing that that gives true healing, the forgiveness of sins and rescuing from death and the devil and eternal salvation. I, I don't know. I, I, I want to draw a connection to baptism from this text, at least in some way. What, what do you think? I think that's perfectly clear. I mean, you have a baptismal font that's a pool of water. You have this pool of Bethesda brings forth healing there in baptism we receive healing not a physical healing but a spiritual healing where we are washed of all of our original sin and all of the sin we've committed before baptism as we are washed in christ's blood and there's something special going on that's beyond what our eyes see i i think here there's obviously something going on beyond what our eyes see i you know the text doesn't say and and the and the layman's uh, legs grew muscle and were perfectly firm and toned but but something happened where he was able to walk now where before he wasn't just as in baptism it's not mere water but as you were saying water combined with god's word yeah so without without with the water there's not a baptism but without god's word there's also not a baptism Mm -hmm. the two are linked in as you said a dichotomy Right, so that when the water is combined with God's word and according to His promise, then it it actually is a baptism. It is a, one that is rich in grace, a washing of rebirth and renewal in the Holy Spirit. This is this is the gift that God gives us, and in that baptism, then we meet this same one that the the man at the pool met. We meet Jesus there. He meets us with all of His gifts, it, the gifts of again forgiveness, rescuing from death and the devil giving eternal salvation. His gifts are there for us in that water because he is present there with his word. That is good news for you and for me. We're going to keep looking at the good news of this text from John 5 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We are talking to Pastor James Yonkers about John 5 this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, 
A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, January 25th. We're studying John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18 with Pastor James Yonkers. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Danville, Illinois. Pastor Yonkers, prior to the break, we were drawing some connections between this text in ba- and baptism and, and talking about the healing aspect of baptism. I don't know that I always think about baptism as healing. I know we, we sometimes will talk about the Lord's Supper as the medicine of immortality and the healing nature of the, the Lord's Supper in that sense. But I, I think there is something to baptism being healing. Now, you, you talked about you know that, that it's a, certainly a spiritual healing, but I, I think we can even talk about a physical healing that happens in baptism, although not one that we experience right away, uh, but one that we would experience then in the resurrection. And I, I had a funeral here not that long ago, and, and as a part of the funeral liturgy that's given in Lutheran service book, we always read from Romans 6, which talks about how in holy baptism, this person who has died was clothed with Christ and was connected to Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection, so that, that we know that the baptized has gone through death and resurrection already so that on the last day at the resurrection of all flesh, there will be that perfect physical healing given in that that resurrection. And so, I mean, I, I think we can even, you know, knowing what Paul says in Romans 6, that baptism, we can talk about baptism as a, a healing, you know, that, that guarantee of what will come on the last day when our bodies are raised and made perfectly new. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, here the healing that God gave, uh, that Christ gives to this man at Bethesda, that healing is temporary. This, right. You know, we don't like to think about this, but the people that Jesus healed did eventually die. Even Lazarus, raised from the dead, eventually did die again, and is still awaiting for the final resurrection. But as you said, in baptism, that's where we are joined to Christ. That's where our sins are forgiven. That's where we are. Pre- are, are brought into this healing. And I think it's perf- it's not a, it's not a, 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 to find the physical healing of it. I mean, the catechism says, you know, what can just water do? And, and, and I, you know, water, if you, if I go wash my hands with water and, and come back and say, I wash my hands, what, what am I told? Go back and use soap, right? I, <laughs> we tell our kids that all the time. <laughs> But with baptism, it's different because it's not just water. It's water with the Word of God, and we're not washing away out outside dirt. We're not washing away germs. We're washing away sin in the in the water, which also has in with it because of God's Word and the promise, the yeah. blood of Christ Jesus our Lord, which gives us those things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, and, and thinking about you know this this pool, which the the thought was that an perhaps it was an angel that came and stirred the water. They you know they they kind of knew that it wasn't just the water, but it was only when the angel came and stirred it. Now, not I'm not trying to say whether or not that's true or not, but but mm-hmm. to think about the comparison that as you said, and it's in our catechism that when it's just water. And there's no word. That's just plain water. You can wash your hands with it. You can drink it, but it's it's just water. 
Yet, when you add the word of God, when you use it according to the promise God has given, and and when you have the word of God with it, I would say, then you have Christ there in the water, the one who's present here at the pool of Bethesda. When he makes himself present in the waters of baptism, then it does these wonderful things that he promises. It gives all those things that we confess in the catechism. It, It rescues from death and the devil and gives eternal salvation. And as Paul says in Romans 6, because we've died and been raised with Christ in baptism, so we will be raised on the last day as well, that full physical healing that awaits those who are in Christ. Right. And, you know, in that final day, there will be no more sickness, no normal, no more people who are lame, no more blindness. I look forward to that day. But but instead, we'll be recreated in perfect bodies, and, and we look forward to that day. But that's the day in the future. The day we have here is the day where these things are true, but they're not yet seen. Yeah, right. So this this man receives healing from Jesus. He's pointed toward Jesus as the one who can give true healing. And Jesus is the one who has given us full healing in the waters of holy baptism. And we await its completion on the last day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So as John continues then, he he notes we've got the healing up into the middle of verse 9. And then the evangelist John, he tells us that all of this happened, by the way, on a Sabbath. And that becomes the point of contention as the text moves forward. So take us into to the the argument that begins when people start to find out all that's happening on the Sabbath. Well, we have to take ourselves back into this time period. And remember, you're not supposed to do any work at all on the Sabbath. Now, I, I remember when I was in early college days, I never quite figured out why everyone closed so early on a Sunday. It took me to go, oh, yeah, that's trying to remember the Sabbath day. That's why. Because in college, I go to church, I come back, have lunch, and I go out and spend time with a friend of mine cruising around town and they come back home and I always wonder why did we stay out late on well, a Sunday and everything shuts down because it's a, the Sunday's kind of it's the eighth day I know but it's the new Sabbath and we that's how we continue it today in our limited Sunday hours but back then no work was to be done on the Sabbath and, part, and I was their understanding of the third commandment to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy and since he did it on the Sabbath that stirred up controversy was one of the reasons that the te- that the leadership of the church and the temple were against him because he would do these things on the Sabbath when you're not supposed to do anything. Mm-hmm. That's right. This is a, a common point of contention between Jesus and the religious authorities, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, but we're seeing it here in John chapter 5. It, it is quite striking, just as this conversation continues, that it, it is the matter of what this man is doing, and what, and when I say this man, what the man who's been healed, what he's doing on the Sabbath becomes the the point of contention and the point of interest more than the actual healing that's taken place. You know, I mean, it's just like you guys are really kind of paying attention to the wrong thing here. For I mean, so in verse ten, the the Jews are saying, "Hey, it's the Sabbath. You shouldn't be carrying your bed." The man said, "Well." This guy healed me, and he told me to do it. And their question back to the man is, who's the guy who said you could you could pick up your bed? Not, wait, who's this guy who, who healed you? It, it's just, I don't know. It, it seems like they're focused on the wrong thing. Yeah, they, they definitely missed the point. 
you know, to see what happened. And they're instant judges. You, you, you're breaking this secondary part of the law and not looking at what actually was done, which is someone has power to heal and restore. That That's awe-inspiring. But it's much easier to look and go, you're breaking the law. You know, we like to point out other people's flaws. We like to point out the the speck in our, someone else's eye, not noticing the log in our own eye. Right. And so these, I mean, these Jews who confront the man are, are certainly, that's what they're concerned about is whether or not this man is, is breaking the law or why is he breaking the law? And to be fair to them, as you, as you said, this is a really big deal. And it's, it's the Sabbath in the Old Testament. The Lord has some pretty strong words about keeping the Sabbath, about not working on the Sabbath and what happens to those who do. And so, I mean, just to, to be fair to them and, and try to, to put ourselves into their position, you can see when you, you look at their context why they were very concerned about this matter. They didn't want the Sabbath to be defiled. As we know from other texts, they needed to learn what the Sabbath is all about. And you know, there's I suppose there's a similarity then to the first part of this text. Just as this man needed to understand that the healing was to be found in Jesus rather than in this water, what these folks really need to, to learn is that the rest of the Sabbath isn't to be found so much in taking a break from work as it is to be found in Jesus again. Yeah, and, you know, here even, you know, this man didn't know, it, it says, we're just about to get there, it says that he didn't know who Jesus was. He just heard right. the voice. He he listened to the voice and it was done. And hark the voice of Jesus calling. Mm. Yeah, that's what he did without even knowing it was Jesus. And so he was healed. Uh, but it was on the Sabbath. But what is the Sabbath? We, we know the Sabbath is much more than not working on Sunday. Look at our look at the catechism. It says nothing about not working. It says, you know, gladly hear and learn the word of God. That's what it says. It says, go and worship with God, but then say, you must do it on the Sabbath. And if we're honest with, our, with ourselves, we don't worship on the Sabbath. We worship on Sunday, not the Sabbath. And there's reasons for that. We can go into the eighth-day theology if you want to. But we, we don't honor the Sabbath in the, the don't work. We honor it in the hearing and learning God's word and the participating in the life of the church on on a day, whether it be Sunday or another day during the week, and going to the divine service, confessing our sins, going to daily offices like matins or morning prayer or evening vespers or whatnot, where we hear God's word and we learn it. Yeah, that's right. For for us, the Sabbath is fulfilled by Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we receive that Sabbath rest by actually coming to him and receiving his gifts. So in really this this man who has been healed has received the gifts of the Sabbath fully in this text by being having his body restored and and as you said though he doesn't yet know Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He he's still kind of in the dark in that sense. And so more needs to happen for this man. So in in verse 13 that's where we find out that the man didn't know who it was. Jesus had actually kind of gone away, taken himself out of any sort of spotlight at this point, but then Jesus comes back. So to talk about what Jesus then says to this man in verse 14. It says, afterwards, 
Jesus found the man in the, in the temple and said to him, well, right now we know Jesus is in the temple. The man went immediately to the temple. We can only assume he's thanking God for his healing, maybe saying, and dear Lord, whoever that was that healed me, bless him. We don't know, but, you know, that's what I'd be doing. And Jesus, Jesus said to the man then, he said, see, you are well. Sin no more. The source of all, all struggle, the source of all evil, the source of even all sickness and illness in life is sin. Not a specific one. And I can't point to one sin I did, which is why I, my vision's bad, or point to one sin you did and tell you why you were sick three weeks ago or whatever. But because there is sin in the world, because we are born with sin, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there is uh, sickness and illness and bad things in this world. And so we are healed from these things. And that's why in heaven we look forward, there will be no more sickness. There'll be no more bad things, no more heartbreak. It will just be an, an eternal life in heaven or in the presence of our Lord. I know there's a debate on those things right now, but in the presence of our Lord living in heaven, in and with him in his courts. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you said about Jesus' words where he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, so that we don't misinterpret those to, to think that Jesus is saying somehow, hey, you were an invalid for 38 years because of a sin, and now if you sin again, something, you know, like you're going to get sick even in a worse way. That's that's not what he's saying. And we're gonna no. we're going to find out a lot more about that that same theology in John chapter 9, where Jesus encounters a man who was born blind, and his disciples ask a question about, hey, who sinned so that this happened? Jesus is going to address that very, very explicitly with precisely what you're talking about there, Pastor Yonker. So we want to make sure we understand Jesus correctly here. And I, I you know, as I listen to Jesus, where he's saying, you know, look, you're well in the sense that you are physically well. When he When he says sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. It's it's not so much about, you know, like a misunderstanding, like you were saying of that sort of one-to-one -one correspondence, you sin this way, you get sick like this. It's not that, mm -hmm. but rather sin no more in the sense of, hey, like believe in me. That's what Jesus is saying. So right. that you don't end up eternally condemned. This This is not about, you know, just sort of the, quote, the sins that you commit, but we're talking here about ultimate sin of unbelief that would lead mm -hmm. to eternal damnation. That's really what Jesus is saying. It, you know, calling this man to who's received the physical healing now to receive a fullness of spiritual healing, which comes through faith in Christ. Right, because with our human eyes, we look, you know, I, God bless everyone with a disability, I'm amongst you. But at the same time, we, we, we look at this and go, you know, so often we think, I'm glad that's not me. But what's worse than a physical ailment or a physical disability is eternal, like you said, eternal damnation. That's even worse. And it goes to no more, so nothing worse happens to you. Jesus acknowledges this is not good. This is not the will of God that we would have sickness and illness on this earth. He comes to bring healing, doesn't he? But he also especially comes to redeem us and to free us so we do not live in sin, so we do not suffer eternal damnation, but instead 
receive the eternal life which he has won for us, which he has accomplished for us by fulfilling the law of Moses. Yeah, so so this is not, again, not Jesus saying you got sick because you sinned, and if you sin again, you're going to get sick worse. This is rather Jesus saying, here I am as the Savior, receive the fullness of my gifts that go beyond just this physical healing, which, as you pointed out, later we know that this man will die. And so Jesus wants this man to have something greater, the eternal life, the resurrection. That's what he's he's talking about here in verse 14. What's striking then is in verse 15, you don't really get a reaction one way or the other from this man in terms of faith or unbelief. I I, I mean, the way I read this text is kind of ambiguous. You don't really see whether he, you know, he believes, as we've seen, for example, in the Samaritan woman and the other Samaritans and the official from Capernaum, we know from the text that they and their households believed this man, it doesn't say one way or another. It's kind of ambiguous as to how he reacts. He just goes and, and tells the Jews, oh, hey, you, you were asking about the guy who healed me? It's that Jesus over there. I mean, it's just kind of, it doesn't really tell us one way or the other. Well, you know, sometimes we respond in different ways. You know, some people are on, are on fire. They live out their faith and they tell everyone about their faith. Others are very quiet about it. They come on Sunday. They believe strongly. They receive the, the word of God, they receive the sacraments, they live their faith, but they do it very quietly. I, but this man, you know, as you said, he, he responds very quietly. He do, doesn't deny it. He tells people, this man, Jesus healed me, but he doesn't give anything past out of, he's the most wonderful man in the world. I'm so glad he's in my life. As you said, it's just, this man, Jesus healed me. He speaks the truth and nothing more. Yeah, and, and he's not condemned for it either. He, his healing remains. Jesus doesn't say you should say more. And it, it's it's just the way he responds to the good news, to the gospel which is given to him through the healing of his body and get the giving of new health and new life, so that nothing worse may happen to him. So the man goes and tells the Jews that Jesus is the one. He, he goes and answers their question. And this is really going to then set the stage for, for what happens not only at the end of our text, but really into the rest of John chapter 5. This matter of Jesus not only healing on the Sabbath, but telling people to take up their mat and walk on the Sabbath, that's really going to, to begin this growing conflict over who Jesus is. And John even tells us then in verse 16 uh, why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because of his work on the Sabbath. Talk about, again, their persecution of Jesus and then his response there in verse 17. Verse 17 says, but Jesus answered them, "My, um, my father is working until now and I am working so, so it's, it, it's a, cont- a continuous work of God. His work of salvation is not complete yet as he goes to Jerusalem, as he goes to the cross. This is just a glimpse into his work uh, of his earthly ministry. Through other places we hear in the Gospels, we know that not every miracle he did is listed. Not every word he spoke is listed. We, we know that because we know how many words we say even on a radio program like this, Jesus must have said more in his earthly life than the couple of gospels we have here. But what they are, they're, they're not 
necessary for our salvation, they're not made so that we know it. But what he does reveal here is he he once again calls God Father, which we do through our baptism, relating it back to our early discussion, where we are made to be children of God and so able to call God Father as we do in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. And yet, here in this text, calling God Father, as we look in, in, in the mind of the people around him, is going to be another part of what gets him in trouble. How are you saying you're equal to God and his son? You know, how, how, how do you possibly say that? Because I wish I could say it's because they were so sure of their own sinfulness. They knew they were not worthy to be sons and daughters of God, for none of us are. But I think it's something more of just, you're saying you're the son of God. We, we, we don't acknowledge that. We deny what we see with our own eyes, the power you have. Hmm. You know, except the centurion, once he acknowledged it, when he sees Christ die and then looks back, he goes, surely this man was the son of God. Hmm. Jesus' comment about the, his father working and then he is also working in conjunction with that. I think, you know, that certainly plays into the, the idea of what Sabbath is and who establishes Sabbath, that, you know, Sabbath being rest. But Jesus is, is confessing here, look, there's, I am here doing the work that my father is doing, which is the work of salvation. And it, mm -hmm. it, it's in that work of Jesus then that we experience true Sabbath, true rest. And, and that's going to be established after Jesus is buried on the seventh day, Saturday, the Sabbath, and then the rest fully comes when Jesus gets to the eighth day, the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, there is the true Sabbath rest because the work of salvation, as Jesus says on the cross, is finished. And, and that Sabbath rest, it's found truly in Jesus in the work that he does and in the work that he does, because that's the work his father has given him to do. And as you said, this is where, I mean, this is where the rubber really hits the road for the opponents of Jesus. And that's where, where our text is going to end today in verse 18. John, John now says, you know, verse 16, he said, this is why the Jews were persecuting him. And then in verse 18, it, it escalates. He says, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was there the matter of the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. That's it's very, I think it's very important for us to see there how those who heard Jesus understood what Jesus was teaching. You know, some sometimes you'll you'll hear critics say today that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, when you look at what he actually said in the scriptures and the way people heard what he said, it's pretty clear that he was saying, Yes, I am. God, I am equal with him. He is my father in a sense that's different, as you said, than when we call God our father in the Lord's prayer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you mentioned, you know, he gets in trouble for making himself equal to God, he does. He speaks the truth. Why are the Jews trying to crucify him? Because of his blasphemy, which is not blasphemy for its truth. When he says that he is the son of God, when he says, I am the, I am, and the father are one. When he's before Pilate and he says, yes, I am a king, and he says, but my kingdom's not of this world. He's not guilty of, in, of starting an insurrection, which is why Rome crucifies him. But he is guilty of blasphemy, 
uh, or, or of declaring himself to be the equal with God, which is the truth. But for any of us, if we would say that would be blasphemy. That's right. Yeah. So Jesus does claim to be God and it's not blasphemy because for him it's true. So that's the the setting for the rest of John chapter five, which we'll look at in, in coming episodes. We won't look at it all at once because there's a lot of, of words of Jesus that we need to unpack in the coming verses. But this this conflict that we've seen here all stemming from Jesus' healing at Bethesda, this will set the stage for Jesus' words coming in chapter 5. Pastor Yonkers, we got about two minutes here on the morning. As you think about what Jesus does here in John chapter 5, what he says, help us to wrap things up. Give us the good news that's ours from this text. You know, one of the things we often look and go, I wish I'd be healed like that, but we're we're healed in the even better way. This man is healed temporarily here on this earth of his inf- infertility of his uh, of his uh, being lame of his whatever his physical ailment is but we are, are we are healed eternally because of our baptism we are healed eternally by the washing in Christ's blood and we are made to be sons and daughters of the most high god able to call god himself our Father. What a beautiful thing that is. Pastor James Yonkers is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Danville, Illinois, helping us today with John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Yonkers, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me once again. Jesus pointed this man to the healing that was found not in the pool at Bethesda, but the healing that was found in his own word. So Jesus gives us healing through his word that he attaches to the water of holy baptism, the spiritual healing of forgiveness and physical healing of resurrection on the last day. That is his promise to you and to me, dear baptized child of God. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about John chapter 5 or any of the gospel, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.